I'm going to read from Genesis 17, chapter 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I might make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham, Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offsprings after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offsprings after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offsprings after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offsprings after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offsprings, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall, so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, <clears throat> As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, All that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking to him, God went out from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house and bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskins. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskins. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, Lord, as you speak to us today. I pray that you continue to use Pastor Ryan today as you lead us in your word to continue to embrace your love and grace daily. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, so uh, you read the text. Uh, I am going to talk about 
circumcision, especially in the third point. So uh, if you got little kids and you're not ready to talk about that, there's your warning. <laughs> it's, no, but it's seriously, it's really important. It's, it's, it's such an important thing that we understand uh, what's happening in Genesis 17, uh, because really the promises of God hang on what's happening here for us. Um, and so, um, you know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking really what's happening here is we're seeing Abram and the Lord um, really grow in, Abram really grow in the, his understanding of covenant love and what that is and how God's love grows in his understanding of his love. And I, I was thinking about, you know, as, um, you know, whenever you, maybe, you, maybe you've dated someone before, maybe it was on the, you know, playground puppy love, or maybe it was like a real relationship, and you kind of get to that threshold where you're like, do I tell them I love them or not? You, some of you have been there before, maybe some of you are there now. Uh, and it's just kind of this place where you're like, you know, it, it's almost like we project into the future. We're like, man, if I tell them I love them, that means like I'm, like I'm walking down the aisle with them. Like we're, we're afraid to communicate that. And I, and I know that we're afraid to do that because as I'm just hang, hanging out with my friends, some of them, whenever I talk to them, I'll be like, hey man, love you, bro. I hope you're doing well. And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, I'll talk to you later, man. Have, have a good one. And we kind of get uncomfortable with the word love. Or even some of us, we have, we have children, especially men. We have children and we have a difficult time telling our children that we love them. And, and what we see happening with Abram here is that God is communicating his love to him. And what, we, what, we understand, what I understand about culturally where we come from is that we, we have a hard time understanding that love, covenant love is a love that we grow in comprehension of over time. It's a love that we, we kind of get initially, but we grow in comprehension of it over time. And you think about the, the four types of love that are mentioned in the Greek, the Greek language that we all experience. There's that, that eros love, kind of that Hollywood love, that romantic love, right? And then you've got that, that story love that's the compassionate, empathetic. You've got that phileo love, which is a brotherly love. And all of those hit at the edges of this covenant-keeping love, this agape love, this, this self-sacrificing love. And this is what Abram is growing in awareness of. This is what he's growing in awareness of. And so our big idea for today is this. Comprehending covenant love takes time. Comprehending covenant love takes time. It took time for Abram. It takes time for us. It's something we're always growing in awareness and depth of. As we think about Abram's story, as we're going to look at it today, and the concept of covenant, because covenant is really the big word that describes our relationship with God, God's love for us. Covenant is the word that kind of encapsulates that. I want you to think about a rose, when you think about a rose, or some of you bought roses for your wife, maybe on Valentine's Day. Um, you think about a rose, when you're picking out roses, if you see, if you see a rose, it's like, it's kind of budding a little bit. You're kind of like, okay, that's going to be beautiful. It's not beautiful yet. Or if you get one that's like all the way opened up, you're like, if I get that home, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be dead in a couple days, right? Don't get that one. But the idea of the beauty of a rose is that it grows in complexity over time and it opens up. I think it's a really helpful metaphor for us, a picture for us to understand God's covenant, to understand God's love for Abram, God's love for us, his everlasting love, is that we grow in awareness of it over time. And so uh, what, I want us to, what I want us to look at today is really three things. As we look at Genesis 17, and I can't be exhaustive about everything, but I'm gonna do my best to hit on the really high points of Genesis 17. I've got three points I want to make. The first one is this, 
is that there is a pattern to covenant love, that grace empowers obedience. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, is that in a covenant, there are obligations. So the second point is gonna be looking at God's obligations, what he promises to us in this covenantal relationship. Now, the third point is this, what are our covenant obligations in order to, to live in covenant relationship with God? So let's dig into that first point together this morning. Uh, I'm gonna read a quote for us by Ian Duguid. He says this about, about uh, this uh, passage. He says, people, people in those days would have been f- uh, familiar with the idea of covenant, not so much in our day, we know that. But here's what he says. He says, essentially, a covenant is a relationship based on the surrender of control. And that just really struck me. A covenant is based on a relationship that surrenders control. So you even think about the picture of a marriage. You know, when you get married, it's about surrendering control. It is about sacrificing for one another, isn't it? So the question with our relationship with God when we think about covenant is this. Who surrenders first? Who surrenders first? You know what I see is the, is the pattern in the Bible, and I'm gonna beat this like a dead horse here, is that God always surrenders first. And we call this mercy. It means we don't get what we deserve. God surrenders first. And the order of surrender really, 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 really matters because the biggest struggle that you and I have as Christ followers is how does our disobedience impact our standing with God? What happens when we sin as Christians? Does God leave us? How do we reconcile those two realities that we are sinners and God loves us? How do we reconcile those two things? So in order to illustrate this, I want you to think about Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15 is the place where God brings Abram into into covenant. And what he does is he puts him to sleep. Brandon preached on this a couple weeks ago. He puts Abram to sleep. He he cuts these animals in half and passes through them, the smoking pot. And and what it symbolizes, what it represents, is that God is cementing his promise to Abram's life that he will be his God and Abram and his descendants will be his people and nothing can change that. The interesting thing about Genesis 15 is Abram is not involved in it at all. I think God wants to communicate that to us. The order matters. So what happens is 13 years later, God cuts Abram into the covenant by giving him the sign and seal of circumcision. Now, what had happened in between those 13 years? What did we talk about last week? Hagar, right? So God hears from Abram in Genesis 15. It's the last time he's heard God speak. God gave him this promise. Genesis 16, we don't really know how long it was after that. I tried to find out this week. It was at least 13 years though, okay? It might've been longer. Um, Or 13 years and some change. And so Abram kind of goes off on his own path like he's so prone to do, like you and I do. And uh, he he, he takes another wife, has a son, Ishmael, Sarah really mistreats Hagar. Hagar runs. God speaks to Hagar, not Abram, right? Uh, and and when, when he speaks to her, he says, he says, hey, go back home. And by the way, your son's name is gonna be Ishmael. And we know that Hagar tells Abram that because Abram names his son Ishmael. But God has not heard, or sorry, Abram has not heard from God. He's committed this sin. He hasn't heard from God. I don't know about you, but if I was hearing from God and then there's 13 years of silence, I, I start to have some questions, right? I, don't, I mean, 
Even thinking about my kids, I don't even have a 13-year-old yet. And it seems like I've been a parent for a long time. 13 years is a very long time not to hear from God, right? And so I would, I would have some doubts. But what we see the Lord do is, is let Abram sit in grace for 13 years. God wanted Abram to sit in grace for 13 years, I think, to know that it's God's tender-hearted love that empowers obedience. And you know what happens when, when God continues to show up in your life when you know you don't deserve it? It changes you, doesn't it? It changes you when you know that you've done the wrong thing, but God still shows up and shows grace and mercy. It changes you. It deepens your understanding of grace. And when we have a deeper understanding of grace, it's more substantial to hold our lives. It's the solid rock as we sing about, right? That's what begins to happen. That's what we see Abram living out, that his understanding of covenant love is swelling. It is growing the longer that he walks with God. And it involves seasons of drought and seasons of silence, but God keeps showing up, doesn't he? He keeps fulfilling his promise to Abram. And when, when God chooses to call one of us a son or a daughter, he's bound to us forever. That's the doctrine of adoption that we talk about, that we're sons and daughters of God. And, and guess what? God doesn't have any grandkids. Think about that. He only has kids. It's not a distant relationship with the Lord. It is a close relationship as children. And the thing I want you to remember is that he is bound to you through this promise. He's bound to the fact that he must bless Abram. Now, this, this would be a covenant that depends on grace, not this quid pro quo kind of, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you kind of a thing. That's why he lets him sit in it for 13 years before he gives Abram's obligation his side of the covenant. And, um, and, and, it, and it's always been this way since the fall. You remember when Adam and Eve uh, first disobeyed in the garden, Genesis 3, God doles out the, the consequences to Adam and Eve and the serpent. And then he banishes them from the garden, from, the, from access uh, to the tree of life, right? But what does he do before he does that? He, he does something very significant for them. What, anybody know? It's the second service. You know I'm expecting this give and take here. He kills animals, doesn't he? He clothes them. He sheds innocent blood for them. He covers them. God is the one sacrificing for us to keep us in relationship with him. He always is. He's making the first move. And this is the order of covenant love, that God always works first and we respond. Paul wants us to know this. This is why he writes Romans chapter four. Romans chapter four is all about this, but I'm gonna read four verses just for the sake of time today, starting in verse nine. Paul says, uh, Paul writes this, is this blessing, and he's talking about salvation, uh, is it only for the circumcised or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abram as righteousness. He's, he's quoting Genesis chapter 15, six there. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness. And that's a key word, seal. I want you to, if, you're, if you have a real like paper Bible, you should underline that. A seal of the righteousness that he had by faith 
while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So here's the deal. We know that circumcision is a sign. It's a, it's a physical sign that points to a spiritual reality. We know that. We know, we know the same thing about baptism, right? It's a physical sign that points to a spiritual reality. The sign's important, but the thing it evidences is arguably more important, right? It's very important. But it's also a seal. I don't hear very many people talking about this. So what is a seal? If we were to just define what a seal is, I mean, in a mechanical fashion, a seal is a device or a substance that joins two things together to prevent them from coming apart and also to keep anything from passing between them. Do you see the parallel with our life in God? How significant that is, that he seals us? It could also be like a king has a signet ring uh, back in those days and, and they, would, they would heat up wax on a letter and they would put their signet ring, the only, the, only the king had the ring to authenticate where the message came from. He's sealing. So he says that the circumcision or this, this sacrament here is sealing their relationship together. This is what Abram looks back and says. And, and what it's saying is that this sign and seal of the covenant signifies this promise that he will be their God and they will be his people and that nothing can ever, 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 ever come between that. Not even Abram's escapade with Hagar. Not even the stuff he's gonna do in the future that we're gonna look at. Nothing can ultimately come between him and the Lord. Isn't that good news? That's amazing news, isn't it? Here's the thing. What if that same promise was for us? Galatians 3.29 says that if, that if we are Christ's, then, then we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what this means is that that everlasting covenant, like what Jesus came to do, was not some other covenant. It wasn't this other thing that was kind of over here on the side. He was fulfilling this promise. That's what Jesus came to fulfill, is this promise that is, that, that is indicated here in Genesis 15, this promise of grace. It's, and the, the order is so significant for us because I think a lot of times we live like this. We live like Genesis 17 comes before Genesis 15. We live like, okay, if I could just get my stuff together and I can obey God and I can walk blamelessly before him and I can get circumcised or baptized or whatever the, the, the sign and seal of the covenant is, then I can have this everlasting promise. But that's not how it works in the Bible church. It doesn't work like that. It works like this. You get the promise and it empowers you to obey and you don't even do it perfectly, but God's carrying us. As Paul would say, he's carrying us on to completion, right? Philippians 1.6, that's the work that he's doing. And why does this matter so much? Why am I taking so much time out of this passage to, to show you this? Because the assurance of your salvation depends on it. The assurance of your salvation depends on living a life that understands that Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. That a Genesis 15 promise comes uh, before Genesis 17 obedience. If you think about the scriptures, think about uh, the letters in the New Testament, uh, the book of Galatians, you know what the first four chapters are all about? The gospel. Here is what God has done. Here's why grace is better than the law. The last two chapters of Galatians, 
They're all about the evidence or fruit of the Spirit and living that out. Book of Ephesians, the same thing. Ephesians chapter one, uh, uh, verse uh, through chapter three, all about the gospel. Here's what God has done. Paul is exhaustive in talking about it. The last three chapters of Ephesians, what are they all about? Here's how it applies to your various relationships, and here's what obedience would look like for you. Grace always comes before the requirement to obey. It always does. Yet we don't live like that very often, do we? You know how we don't? You know how you can know that you don't? Is that whenever you disobey, whenever you sin, you start hiding and your joy leaves. You don't walk in the light. So I wanna, I wanna share more about this. Let's look at these obligations of the covenant. We're gonna look at what God's part is. What, what does God do in this covenant with Abram? And then we're gonna look at what, what he, uh, really what our obligations of the covenant are. Now, I, uh, I just confess, I haven't made this explicit. I haven't been real clear on this because I'm kind of reading Genesis from, from the rearview mirror, but uh, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. I've been, saying, I've been using them interchangeably. Uh, so sorry about that, but, but there is a name change that's really significant here, okay? So Abram, which means exalted father, goes on to be Abraham when God makes this covenant with him, which means the father of many nations, Okay. Now, Sarah's name, or Sarai, means princess or queen. Her name has changed to basically just a, a different form of that same name, Sarah. Um, now, why is the name change so significant here? Why is this important for us to unpack? He's changing their names, which means he's changing their identities. Um, historically speaking, you know, names actually mean something about someone's identity. Um, oftentimes today, it's not really the case as much. We pick names because they sound cool. That's, that's okay. But in the Bible, they, they mean, they have a significant meaning. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is why, you know, often people's names would, would tell us whose son they were, like my name, right? Johnson. Apparently, at somewhere along my lineage, uh, John had a son. And they were like, hey, that's John's son, Right? I like to think it's the, uh, the Apostle John, uh, Jesus' best friend. Like, that's the family I come from. I'd like to believe that. I don't know if it's the case or not. But, um, um, but you know, it, it goes on. I mean, like, uh, so, so Zach, Zach Smith back here. Yeah, so Smith, somewhere along the line, there was a blacksmith in his family, right? There was a baker in here. Uh, somewhere along the line, your, your family had a baker in it or a fisher, right? I mean, it just names, names um, point to identity, and the same is true for Abraham. He's gonna be the father of a multitude. When you think about our life in Christ, have you ever wondered why we are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Why are we baptized into the name of the triune God? Jesus told us to baptize into this name because our identity or our status had been changed, right? We no longer live under our name, but we live under his name. And when God sees us, he no longer sees us under our name, but under his name. We're baptized into that family. And this is, it's, it's interesting, but back in the early church, um, when, when people would go through kind of that, that catechism process where they would wait up to a year to be baptized after they made a profession of faith, they would, so for some people, they would actually change their names when they became baptized, when they came into the family of God. That's how serious it was. 
Um, and because they saw baptism, um, as I'll explain here in just a minute, as the covenant-keeping sacrament of the new covenant that Jesus has secured for us. Um, but, but only our new name in him can, can heal and restore our identity and self-understanding. That's the only way we, we make sense of the mess that we've lived in. Because the truth is, is that we've entered in and out of covenant with lots of sinful things in our lives. Lots of different agreements between parties, right? Whether that be a, a, you know, a, a relationship um, that's physical with someone other than your spouse, you enter into a covenant, it makes promises to you that it cannot keep and leaves you with consequences that it did not let you know about, right? Or you think about how many of us um, get into seasons where we're maybe self-absorbed with self-image. Uh, we enter into covenant with this idea <laughs> that if we do X, Y, and Z, we'll look like this. And then that will bring me satisfaction and joy only to find that sin still crushes our body. And what happens is that those, those promises, and, and the book of Romans talks all about this in chapter one. It says, they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. That's all those false covenants that we make, all those false relationships and agreements that, that uh, promise things that they can never give us. And, and I would argue that this is why sometimes God's promise to us to give us everlasting life we kind of shrug it off because we've been in and out of so many kind of covenantal relationships that haven't panned out. But it's altogether different with the Lord. Think about, back to that image of the unfolding rose. What is, what is God gonna do for Abraham? What's he gonna do? Well, he says that he's not gonna just give him a nation. He says he's gonna give him nations. This is news to Abraham. This is news that kings are gonna come from his family. He didn't know that the rose is unfolding. The covenant's getting more clear. It's getting more rich. Uh, descendants. So Abram's told that, that he's going to be in covenant with God. God's going to bless him. But in Genesis 17, it says that this, this, um, this is going to be an everlasting covenant for his descendants, that God's going to covenant with his, with his descendants as well. It's this deeper revelation to Abraham. Canaan. So you remember Genesis 14 Lot goes out and he picks uh, his choice of the land. Uh, Abraham gives him his, his choice. And then kind of right after that, uh, the Lord meets Abraham and he says, hey, you know, I'm gonna actually give you all of this. This is gonna be yours. Um, and, and, and he gets more specific here in Genesis 17 because he names the place, the land of Canaan. So God's covenant love is moving closer and closer to Abraham. And we see this even, guys, just, in, just to make a point here, Jeremiah 31. The, the thing I want you to see is that, is that the promises of God are getting more and more clear and closer and closer and closer over time to God's people. Jeremiah 31 talks about this idea of the new covenant, which is, the, I would argue, the, the administration of this covenant to bring everlasting life uh, to us. And he says this about uh, that new covenant. Jeremiah prophesies, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant. And when we, let me just pause there for a second. When we, uh, when we take communion, we say this is the cup of, Jesus says this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, right? This is the covenant that we live within, this, this right here. He says, uh, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant that'll be after Abraham. <clears throat> Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law not on stone tablets, but I'll put it within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I, same thing he says to Abraham, right? I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor uh, and his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least, from the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So this is so significant for us because this promise is, is kind of strung out throughout history. And it's moved from, from, from uh, Abraham not being present in it at all in Genesis 15 to it being written on our hearts as believers in Jesus now. The promise is so close to us. And this is why Jesus says before he sends out his disciples, wait on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of the new covenant. It's the fulfillment of God coming near to us. Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And that's true. That's what we get in the spirit. So these are the things that God promises Abraham and us because we are heirs of the same covenant. We just get to look at it in reverse. So what, uh, what, what's our part in this? A covenant is, you know, two parties that each have a part, right? And they, they've got to hold their end of the bargain. Well, we've seen that we've, we've got to remember that, that it's God's grace, that 13 years of grace that empowers this obedience that we're going to look at now. So the obligations of covenant love, how do we respond when God brings us into covenant? So God calls Abraham in Genesis 17, and he's sitting in that promise. And now, and now obedience is the new trajectory for Abraham's life. He won't do it perfectly. So the, the first couple things that are, there's really two or, or three requirements, basically, that, that he gives to Abraham. Uh, one is that he's, to, that he's to walk before God, that he's to walk blamelessly before God, and he's to be circumcised, and his male descendants are supposed to be circumcised and servants as well. So let's look at those real quick. What does it mean that we are to walk before God? Genesis 17, 1 and 2. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. I'm God Almighty. Walk before me, Abraham, and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. So walk before me. What's that mean? It means to live in light of God's promise. It's this idea that indicates that Abraham's faith in God will be more like a pilgrimage of growth than this kind of ascent to a mountaintop. This is why we get so confused when we see God still loving this joker, right? I mean, he messes up so bad. I mean, he messes up in ways that we can't imagine messing up. And all of the people that God will administer his covenant through, I mean, none of them could serve in our children's ministry. We say this a lot, right? They're all murderers. There's no way they'd pass the criminal background check, right? So it's, it's just interesting that our, our um, I guess, metrics for maturity are not often God's metrics for maturity. God's metric for maturity is that you walk before him and to be blameless. So to walk before him, what's that mean? It means that we are walking in the light as he is in the light. It's not that we're always knocking it out of the park, but it's that we're taking both our righteousness and our sin to him. Because if we don't take our righteousness to him, we, we, we grow in pride and we could never confess our sin because it would threaten our, self, our self-righteousness, right? 
And we take our sin to him too. We don't get too high and we don't get too low because it's God that's called us. That's what maturity looks like. That's what it looks like to walk before God. And holiness will not be instantaneous for Abraham. It won't be for you either, is it? He's talking about sanctification here. If Abraham couldn't count on instant, instantaneous you know, sanctification, why do we try to count on it as our best metric for growth? We kind of look and see our, our righteous deeds and we judge other people by it. And all the while, we're not even walking before God. We're walking before men. Walk before God, you take both your righteousness and your sinfulness and you trust God with it. That's what it means to walk before God. He says this to be blameless. Now, at first glance, if I ask you, what does blamelessness mean? You would probably say to be what? Perfect, right? To be sinless. Do you know what it actually means in the Hebrew? I don't know if there's a better word for it or not, but it means to be complete. That's different than being perfect, isn't it? Now, Jesus will say, you've got to be perfect as I'm perfect, you know, and it's driving us to grace. But the idea that he's calling Abraham uh, to, to be blameless is that means to live with his whole life in front of the Lord, to be completely integrated as a person. And that's what God asks of us too. That's what he requires of us, to walk in the light as he is in the light. Now, the other obligation, we're spending the rest of our time on this here, is that Abraham has to be circumcised. <clears throat> so, um, you know, what is circumcision? Uh, Stephen, can y'all pull up the YouTube tutorial real quick? I'm just kidding. Come on, y'all awake? It's a physical and spiritual sign and seal of this covenant that God makes with Abraham and his descendants. And it's to be their God and for them to be his people. So you think biology 101 here, okay? Anatomy 101, rather. Uh, the male reproductive organ is a part of the process of having offspring, right? <clears throat> Circumcision was practiced before this was the sign and seal of the covenant that God made with Abraham. It wasn't a new thing. But now God gives it new meaning for his people as it is adopted for those who call in the name of the Lord to be practiced. So let me, just, let me just make a few points about the significance of this sign and seal. And remember, sign is it's pointing to the spiritual reality. A seal is it's actually accomplishing this, this uh, unity, this integrity between the two, right? It's, both are necessary to have assurance of our salvation. First thing you see is this, is that it's a permanent sign. Um, it will serve to remind every man, every mom changing a diaper, every wife, every person of God's covenant promise. This giving of the sign is not expected to be given in conjunction of the reality of the sign either. You know, Abraham had the promise before he had the sign of the promise. The same way Abraham's descendants will have the sign of the promise before they actually have the reality of the promise. That's really important for us to realize, especially as we're gonna look at baptism in a minute, is that the two don't have to be knit together. The reality is, is that the, the, the sign is given and, the, and the, pro, the reality of the sign is, is a promise that we cling to and we trust God for to bring in his time. The other thing we see is that it's an intimate sign. It's literally put on the most private and personal member of the human body. 
Can, can you imagine a position of more vulnerability as an image bearer of God? I don't think there is one. There's not a more vulnerable position to be in. And it reminds us of how vulnerable and personal we are called to be before God. It had a sanitary purpose. It was a, a sign of cleanliness that, that God's people were to be cleansed, to be set apart. Um, it, it had this bloody and fleshly purpose too. You know, this might surprise you, but circumcision is administered with a knife, right? And uh, it's no surprise that God says that the penalty for being a covenant breaker in verse 17 of chapter 17 is what? To be cut off from God's people, right? It's, 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 the, it's, the other, it's the other side of circumcision, right? That if you don't walk blamelessly before me, you don't trust me and obey me, you're gonna be cut off. So it's no surprise that blood is involved in the giving of the sign. And church, when you see, when you see blood in the Bible, it's always pointing to sin. It's either pointing to the forgiveness of sin, sacrificing animals, um, the cross, uh, or it's pointing to forgiveness, right? Those are the two things that it's pointing to. And so what we see, uh, I'm sorry, forgiveness of sin or punishment for sin, both of which find their end in Jesus. So to sum that up for you, when you see blood in the Bible, make a beeline for Jesus because it's pointing right to him. And we need to remember this because uh, what we see here is that, is that, um, um, that God himself swore himself to Abraham in Genesis 15. He cut through the animals and his presence passed through in the midst of them. 13 years later, he's bringing Abraham in on it. He's cutting him into the promise. He's, 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 he's further extending his promise and making it a reality for Abraham, a physical sign that he'll never forget that he belongs to the one true God, no matter how dark life gets. So I wanna take a, a few more minutes here and just connect the dots as we live in this kind of new covenant time post-Jesus. The covenant is an everlasting covenant for, for God to be God and for we to be his people, right? Well, uh, this is our covenant too, which means this, is that there is a sign and seal of the covenant that must be applied to our lives as well. So here's a question, why not circumcision? Why is that not the sign anymore? Well, when you look in Acts chapter 15, there's this episode that's known as the Jerusalem Council when some people say that, hey, these Gentiles need to be circumcised just like we were. That's, they need to become more Jewish is what they're saying. Um, and, uh, you know, and they basically come to this conclusion that no, that's no longer necessary. And I'm personally so thankful that they came to that because seminary would have been a lot different experience for me. Right? And so what you see is that that sign is no longer necessary. But what I want to tell you now is why it's not necessary. So let's go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, um, Paul writes this, In him, church, Gentile church, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So this covenant of grace that was made explicit in Genesis 15 
It was given a sign in Genesis 17. It'll be passed on to Moses and we'll have the the Ten Commandments and through David, the promise of a king whose kingdom will never have no end comes at last to us through Jesus. But it's not through circumcision because Jesus was the last circumcision necessary for our salvation. Jesus, when he came to earth, one of the first things that's done to him is he's circumcised in Luke chapter two. He's made just like us, brought into the family under the burden of sin. But Colossians two says the cross is the final circumcision necessary for God's people because his perfect blood has spoken once and for all for our sin. Amen? He's done that for us. I didn't see that until this week. Again, it's like I've never read Genesis before. I'm just connecting the dots just like you are. I didn't see that he was the final circumcision. And so so Paul and Jesus will tell us that this new sign of the covenant is baptism. See what he says there in verse, uh, verse 12? He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you're also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God. Now, it's, a, it's, a, it's about a spiritual reality about belonging to God, but it's also about a physical sign, right? It's, there's always a physical sign that accompanies that spiritual reality for us. Jesus says it's baptism now. It's no longer a bloody sign because his blood has spoken the final word. There's no longer need for the shedding of blood because the perfect blood has been spilled. So now we have this bloodless sign, this sign of water given that is now the administration of this new covenant promise for us that we'll be his God and he will be, uh, that we'll be, he'll be our God and we'll be his people. And that just as, an, as a side note here, that's why we baptize children of believers here at New City Church. I know that is a, that is a, a, a unique practice to some of you if you don't come from a, a Presbyterian background. Um, and what we're not saying when we baptize that kid is that the reality of the sign uh, and the, you know, the physical sign are kind of hitting at the same place. A lot of times that's how we think about baptism. But as we saw in Romans chapter four, it's not necessary that they line up. What's necessary is that they're given. And the reason why we give children the, the sign and seal of baptism is because they belong in the covenant family of God. And our assumption is, until they choose to be covenant breakers, that they're gonna grow up to be covenant keepers. And so we give them that sign and we pray earnestly for the conversion of their souls. And we raise them up in the family. So often in the church, we treat kids like they need to break into the family instead of break out. We say, hey, you know, little Johnny, whenever you can whenever you can muster up enough of those words just to say them and have a credible profession, then we'll baptize you. We never see anywhere in the New Testament where it says don't baptize, stop giving the sign to kids. Instead, we see this, this rose unfolding about the sign and seal of a covenant where it's expanding in every way. Why would God in this passage say, step it back a notch? Step it back, it's no longer for the kids. I think he calls us to give them the sign and seal of the covenant. He calls us to give it to him in faith that he will bring those kids to spiritual life. I wanna close just by this other part of Colossians 2 here, just for us to apply today. Jesus on the cross, if he was the final circumcision, what was happening for us there, church? Jesus was cut off from God and his people. He was murdered on a sinner's cross 
outside the camp as if he were a filthy, rotten, unclean sinner. And why did he do that? He did that to bring us finally and fully into the family of God. He was the animals ripped apart in Genesis chapter 15. He was the one that was cut off. Jesus came as a child, was circumcised and entered into covenant with us and he perfectly fulfilled all of the obligations that we could never fulfill so that we could have confidence, rock solid confidence that we are forgiven and loved by God for all of eternity. Amen? Amen? That's what is happening in this passage today. And that's what's being applied to us today, especially here at this table that we're gonna turn to. So let me pray for us and we're gonna receive the Lord's table together. Father, you took the knife to Jesus instead of us. God, we don't deserve that. We don't deserve your grace. Yet we presume upon it nearly daily, Lord. We need your forgiveness. We need to be reminded of how much you have done for us, Lord. What you were showing to Abraham that day, inviting him in, letting him sit in grace for 13 years where he may have doubted your promise and then showing up when he least expected it, God. Would you do that in our lives this morning? Maybe there are people in here this morning that are running from you. They deserve to be cut off, Lord. That's all of us. Would you show up in a powerful way through your table this morning? It's sign in this seal of the Lord's Supper. Would it be meaningful to us in more than just a remembrance, but as a seal of our faith to be reminded that the blood on the cross was bloodshed for me. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.